I'm pretty sure that I am the world's worst waiter. And I don't mean that in the restaurant industry sense, because even though I've worked in a restaurant or in the food industry on two separate occasions, apparently I do not have the social graces and interpersonal communication skills to be chosen as the first contact for someone or the front line for a restaurant. And so normally I'm pushed as far to the back of a restaurant as possible, deep, deep in the kitchen where no one can see me or no one has to talk to me. And that's probably for the best. And honestly, I wasn't really good at that anyway. And so I probably would have been a terrible waiter. But what I really mean here is that I am terrible at waiting on things. I'm an incredibly impatient person. And when I have to wait on something, especially if it's something that I really want or I'm really ready for it to take place, I can be really irritable. I can be somewhat grumpy and an all-around unpleasant person because I'm just really bad at waiting. And maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe you find yourself in that place too. Maybe you're impatient like me. Maybe waiting stresses you out. And it makes sense why it would. Because it's frustrating to be in that place. It's frustrating to be stuck in the time in between, when you've left the station, but you're still a long way away from the destination. And sometimes that waiting can be indefinite. Sometimes that waiting can be magnified by the severity of what's going on or the the goodness of what you're waiting for. Waiting can be very frustrating. But that's where we find ourselves as Christians. We're waiting. We find ourselves in a place in between Jesus coming into the world. Born of the Virgin Mary, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with men, teaching about the kingdom of God, performing his miracles, and then ultimately fulfilling his purpose by dying on the cross and three days raising again and then ascending back into heaven. We're in between that time and the time that we believe is coming when Christ returns to make everything new and to bring heaven to earth and to finish what he started once and for all. And the in-between there can often be difficult It can often be frustrating, and it leaves us with the question, what do we do in the in-between? How are we supposed to live between two advents? How do we live between the resurrection and ascension and Christ's return? The easy thing to do, and this is what we're often guilty of, is to just tuck our head down, keep our head down, and wait for Jesus to come, wait for heaven to come, and not care about what happens in the rest of the world as long as we're okay and as long as we follow our codes and our rules and keep everything the way that it's supposed to be, and then one day hope that Jesus whisks us off to somewhere else and left everything else behind. But as we see in Scripture, that's not only not the way that things go down, But also, as we've looked over the last two weeks at Jesus and his conflict with the Pharisees and the lawyers, we've seen that that kind of life simply isn't an option. That as followers of Christ, we have work to do. That we aren't called to simply wait, but we're called to prepare. And not only are we called to prepare ourselves and our church for Christ to come again, but it's our responsibility as Christians to do the work of preparing the world for the coming of our King. And so this morning on the heels of Jesus confronting the Pharisees and the lawyers for not living this life, for being so focused on themselves and their own righteousness and their own glorification that they neglect the world around them, we're going to see Jesus call us to live a life that matters 
and the in-between. To live a life glorifying God and working for the good of those around us as we wait for Christ to return and make everything right and everything new. And so we're going to do that this morning from the book of Luke as we've been over the past several weeks, looking at Jesus as he teaches us about the kingdom of God. And so our passage today starts in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And we'll read all the way through verse 48. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is faithful and wise manager whom gives his his master excuse me, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you as we do each and every week for your word and the fact that you speak to us. God, even when that message at times can sound very harsh and very difficult to swallow. And so, Father, as we look at the example of these two servants that reflect two different ways to live as followers of Christ. God, help us to be like the first servants who waited for their master to come, being prepared and ready for action and doing the work that they were called to do until the master came home. And God, help us to never reflect that second servant who took what felt like the absence of his master to mean permission to live however he wanted and to do whatever he wanted and to not care about the consequences. But help us to be faithful in what you've given us, to be good stewards of what you've entrusted us with, and to be faithful with the little so one day we'll be able to receive all that you have in store for us. And so God, we do ask that you bless the reading and the preaching of your word and that you would speak through your Holy Spirit and that we would listen and be forever changed and forever moved by the power of the gospel and the message of the kingdom this morning we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
I know we've discussed this before, but sometimes it's the small details inside of Scripture that really catch me off guard and surprise me. And I grew up in church, and so I had heard the story of the Exodus my whole life. And so I knew about Moses, and I knew about the plagues, and I knew about the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, suffering in slavery for 400 years, and then God, through Moses, delivering those people out through a miraculous circumstance and leading them towards the promised land. But several years ago, I was in a church service, and I heard a pastor preaching on this passage, and he pointed out a very small detail that I'd never noticed before. Because before the Hebrew people left Egypt, God gave them a meal, the Passover meal. And God gave them all the intricate details that they were supposed to follow in this meal. Everything that they were supposed to do, everything they were supposed to eat, how they were going to eat it, down to the very last little detail. And one of the details that seemed fairly insignificant is that God told the people to eat this meal with their shoes on and their loins girded. And that seems like an odd instruction for the people, but it makes a lot of sense. Basically, God was telling them, you need to eat this meal ready to move. You need to eat this meal ready to be on the go because you're going to eat this meal, and this is the last thing that you're going to eat in Egypt. And then once you fill your bellies, it's going to be time for you to head out, and you're going to be walking towards the promised land. And so he says, you better have your shoes on because you're not going to have time to put your shoes on after this meal is over. And he tells them to stay dressed for action or to have their loins girded so that they could run. And that phrase, that terminology was really important in the ancient world. Because their garments were very long and flowy and would reach all the way to the floor. And I've never tried to fight in a robe or a cloak or a very long garment, but I imagine it would be very difficult. I have tried to run in very long things that have been... I used to wear... Okay, so... This is just a little blast to the past to middle school. Around the time of 1995, 1996, there were these jeans. They were made by a company called Jinko. There were other brands, but Jinko was the brand. Jinko jeans were unique in their construction because they were very large at the bottom. And not like bell bottoms of the 70s. They didn't bell out. They were just big from the top down. And so as a very tiny child, even with my very large head, I could fit my entire body all the way through one leg. And so I was this big with a head this big and a body this big, and then just these giant tree truck pants that were very long. And so I know what it was like to try to run in those, and it was not very efficient. And one time, I got thrown in a pool at a youth group function, and again, I might have weighed, I guess this is kind of proper terminology here, I might have weighed 60 pounds soaking wet in 6th and 7th grade, and my pants, when they were soaking wet, weighed at least that, and so I was being sucked down to the bottom of the pool because these large older people threw me in, and it wasn't funny, and it wasn't fair, but I had large pants, and so I guess I earned what I got there, but it's very difficult when you have these large, wide things on to do anything productive. And so these people in the ancient world with these long cloaks on, when it was time to run or when it was time to move quickly or particularly when it was time to fight, would have belts with sashes that came down the sides. And so when it was time to fight, they would take this sash and they would put it between their legs and they would pull it up through the back and tuck it in. And so now their long robe became funny little pants. And funny little pants are easier to run and fight in than long robes. And so now all of a sudden they were dressed for action. And so that same language that would have been for the people in the Exodus when they were getting ready to run towards the promised land, Jesus now uses that terminology here in Luke chapter 12. He begins by saying, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
He's saying, keep your loins girded. Keep, keep your funny little pants on so that you can run when it's time to run, so that you're always ready and so that you're never going to be caught, I guess, with your pants loose. I don't know what the, the old, the New Testament idiom for that would be, but so that you're never caught in a place where you're not going to be able to do what you're called to do. And I think it's important to notice here that Jesus doesn't say, get dressed for action or light your lamps. But he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Again, it's the small details there. That Jesus isn't saying that one day there's going to come a time when you're going to have to jump out of bed and get ready to go. You need to always be ready. You need to always have your lamp lit. You need to always be watching and always be prepared, not simply for God to call you into action, but for that day when Christ comes to make everything right and everything new. But the difficulty with that is that even for the most faithful of Christians, it's really easy for our faith and for our hope and for our knowledge of Jesus and what he's done for us to drift to the back of our minds. I don't know if you've played t-ball. I played t-ball. Again, not very good. I don't really like baseball anymore. I don't guess I really liked it then, but I felt like I was supposed to. And so I played t-ball, and I found myself sometimes out in right field. And in t-ball, being in right field might as well be in New Mexico (laughs) because nothing ever happens in right field. Very rarely do you have a little dude that can hit the ball to right field. And I know it's very strange that there's mowing of the grass happening out here on a Sunday morning, but apparently that's what's going on. And so that's fun. So t-ball, right field, nothing happens. I'm pretty sure that's the place where I tasted grass for the first time because what else do you have to do? You're out in right field. So you play with your glove, you figure out what the clouds look like, but you're certainly not going to be catching a ball. And it's very easy to forget when you're in right field playing t-ball that you're actually in a baseball game. You are, but you're kind of not. And the same thing can happen to us when it comes to our faith. We know, and we always remember, if you've been saved by the grace and mercy of God, if you go to church, if you're a Christian, then that's part of who you are. And it's easy to remember that that's who you are, but sometimes it can forget that you're, it's easy to forget that you're actually in the game. And the truth of the gospel drifts to the back of our minds. And so that's why Jesus here stresses the importance of staying ready, of always being alert of always being prepared, of always reminding ourselves not simply of the truth of the gospel, which we need to be preaching to ourselves and reminding ourselves of every single day, but also reminding ourselves that we have work to do. And so he tells us a parable about some servants. He says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus says, be like good servants that know that even though the master has gone away to the wedding feast, that he's coming back and that while he's gone, that they have work to do. And that he's left them with responsibilities and that it's their job to wait for the master to come home and to make sure that all of the house is in order when the master returns. And in verse 38, he continues saying, if he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. 
And so Jesus says the later the master comes home in the evening, the more blessed these servants are if they're waiting in the second watch, the third watch, or the deep, late hours of the night. And he says you must also be ready, the same way that these servants would be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. But again, waiting is hard enough on its own. But waiting for an indefinite period of time can be agonizing. And so for these servants, they don't know when their master is coming home. It could be early in the evening. It could be much later at night. It could be into the third watch, into the next day. They don't know how long the master is going to be gone. And so they're having to stay awake and they're having to stay prepared. And that kind of indefinite waiting can be very, very difficult. When we look at the book of Revelation, John writes the book of Revelation in the beginning as he's writing to these seven churches. He says, I'm writing to you about these things that must soon take place. And now while certainly we can make a case that several of the things that John discusses in the book of Revelation have taken place over the course of the history of Christianity, we know that there are certain things in Revelation specifically that are future. When it talks about in chapter 20 and 21 and 22 about Christ coming again to make everything right and everything new and putting away death and putting away sin and shame and all that brokenness once and for all, we know that that hasn't happened yet. And that that's our ultimate hope and that's what we're waiting for. And the book of Revelation even ends with that phrase, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet here we are a couple thousand years later. And it feels like we're in the third watch. It feels like we've been waiting for so long. And the older you get in life, the longer it feels like you've been waiting. And so we just cry out to God saying, we thought you were coming quickly. We thought you were going to bring this all to wrap. But look at all the things happening in our world. How long, oh Lord, to echo the words of the psalmist and in the Old Testament, how long is all of this going to take place? How long do we have to wait? And it can be really hard for us to stay awake. Maybe we believe it, and most of us do, I think, that Christ is going to come again and he's going to make all these things right. But it can start to turn into more of a distant idea than a certain reality. And when that happens, that's when temptation can begin to creep in. And so on the other side of that, Jesus tells us about another servant. And in verse 45... Jesus says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect in an hour he does not know. But that's what happens with this servant. This temptation starts to creep in. And it makes sense. It's a really logical thought process. It's one that we've probably all had, whether it was with parents or bosses or something along those lines, where somebody in authority is gone and we start to think, you know what? They're not here. It was like when the teacher would leave the room, which I don't, that seems like a very bad idea, especially in my fourth grade class. I don't know why we're going back to tiny Chris stories a lot today, but just go with me here. It's, I don't know, it's a nostalgic feeling week. And so my fourth grade class was bad. 
I was probably fourth or fifth on the depth chart of bad kids in that class, and I probably was in the principal's office six or seven times that year. I once went back-to-back days. I don't even know how that's possible. But again, I was at least number four or five on that depth chart of bad kids in that class. Rest, I don't know where Miss Peerless is today, but I hope that God has blessed her indefinitely. But I remember when a teacher would leave the classroom, our thought process was, we are free. (laughs) We can do whatever we want. And we think that way, we feel that way in a lot of different circumstances. And so it makes sense that this servant would say, you know what? The master's gone. And yeah, he's going to come back, but I'm sure I've got time. I can do whatever I want for a little while. I don't have to be that dedicated. I don't really have to pay attention to anything. As long as I clean up the mess before the master gets home, everything will be fine. And so the servant starts to live in a way that is not becoming of a servant. He starts to abuse the other servants and eat and drink and get drunk and live like he is no longer a servant. But here's the problem. Just because the servant's mindset changed, it doesn't mean that his station changed. Just because the servant stopped acting like a servant does not mean that the servant was no longer a servant. And just because the master was gone, it doesn't mean that the servant did not, in fact, have a master. The master's absence did not excuse the servant's duty. And so in one of those very difficult, very hard sayings that Jesus has that reminds us that his teaching was much more than just the the lambs and children thing that we see in paintings, Jesus says that because the master returned at this time when the servant didn't expect, when he came home and found the servant living this way, there were consequences. Big ones. And while we can get caught up on the very graphic things Jesus says about cutting him into pieces, which seems really harsh, the one that really jumped off the page here, he says that he will put him with the unfaithful. That there is now a change of station in some way, shape, form, or fashion for the servant because he stopped doing what the master had called him to do. But we could look at that and we could say, that's that's not fair. Why are there consequences for this servant? Because the master was away, and this guy was just taking some time to live life the way that he wanted to live. But Jesus gives us that answer in verses 47 and 48. He says, And that servant who knew his master's will, and that is, oh man, that's such an important part. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, there was work to be done. And this servant had a very special place in the house of the master, and he had a very important task, but he decided to reject it because his love for himself and his love for sin was greater than his obligation and his obedience and his love for his master. And Jesus says this servant knew the master's will. He had that inside knowledge. He was there. The master told him what he was supposed to do. He knew who he was supposed to be and how he was supposed to live. And yet he decided to reject that to glorify himself and to abuse the others around him. And it can be easy to feel that way. Maybe not on quite such a diabolical level, but it can be easy to feel like the master's away. That we're waiting for Jesus to return. And so because of that, I'm saved by grace. 
I've been through baptism. I'm okay. I know that God sees me as his child. And so what difference does it make? It doesn't really matter at all how I use this life. But it does matter. How we use our lives actually matters greatly. And as Christians, we can't only look at the eternal things in a way to neglect the temporal. Everything that we see is supposed to be colored by eternity, and we're always supposed to remember that we are here for all time, that God has an eternal plan for our lives, but that doesn't negate the importance of the right here and the right now. Because God's will for our lives is not just something distant, but as we look through the New Testament and we see the New Testament writers teach us about the will of God, we see that we have a responsibility to live out God's will in our lives, to love him and to love our neighbors and do all those things that that fall in line with those callings every single moment of every single day. And every action, every word, every thought, everything that we do as followers of Christ has the power to impact not simply our relationship with God and not simply our faith, but the relationship of God and the faith of those around us and even their well-being and their joy and their peace. And so we have to recognize that our master, that our king, Jesus, has entrusted us to be stewards, to be caretakers of everything that he's given us to be caretakers of our lives and to use our lives well for God's glory and for the good of those around us. He's instructed us to be caretakers of our world and the communities that he's placed us in. And he's also instructed us to be caretakers of his kingdom and to be the force that goes out and to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, to do what he has entrusted us with. As Peter made that confession of faith and Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom, through that confession of faith, we we take hold of that. And it's our job to go out and to see the kingdom grow by sharing our faith and loving our neighbors and serving those who are in need. And we do that until Christ returns to finish what he started. We prepare our world to the best of our ability for the master to come home. And Jesus says to those who are given much, much will be required from them. And we have been given much. Particularly spiritually, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you have been given more than you could ever ask for, that you could ever need. And everything else that we have in our lives, the material things, our health, whatever comes along, those are things that God has just given us to add on to that. But all of us have been given a great gift through Jesus Christ. And all of us have spiritual gifts that are used to grow the kingdom for the good of the church and for the good of others. And so for those of us that have been given much through Christ, much is expected of us. And it's our responsibility to use those things well. And we have to wear the weight of this passage because we have to recognize that if we aren't faithful with those things, that there are consequences. That one day all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And yes, we'll be able to stand as sons and daughters of God, but we're also going to have to give an account for how we've used the gifts that he's given us and how we've used the lives and the salvation that he's entrusted us with. And that's going to be a hard day for some of us. And so we have to be ready, constantly keeping that lamp lit, constantly being dressed for action. And we do that by keeping the gospel and keeping the knowledge of Christ and keeping our mission always on the forefront of our minds. And this comes, of course, through spending time in Scripture and reading about who God is and knowing God's will. 
And that's the beautiful thing about God's will. Sometimes we think about God's will as this deep, mysterious thing that's off in the distance and it's covered by clouds and it's murky and it's some sort of future thing. But the Bible is very clear about what God's will for our life is. And you can do this little experiment. You can find just through a Bible app or something on your phone or through your concordance in your Bible. If you look up the phrase God's will, it is very plain all through Scripture what God's will for our life is. That we are called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're called to have a deep love and compassion for our neighbors. That we're called to go out and to serve and to do things that honor and glorify God. That we are called, it's God's will, that we would separate ourselves from sin and from the things that displease God. It's all laid out very plainly. And so we know God's will for our lives. And so we have no excuse not to follow it. But we have to spend time in Scripture to know it. We have to dedicate ourselves to be students of God's Word. We have to devote ourselves to prayer and speaking to God and listening to God as he speaks to us through his word and through the Holy Spirit. We have to be connected into a church body where iron sharpens iron and our brothers and sisters in Christ can lift us up and encourage us and sometimes call us out when need be so that we can go and love and serve with one another. But we have to constantly be prepared. And then we have to work faithfully. We can't just take that information in our minds, but we have to put it into practice, staying away from the things that displease God, rejecting sin and temptation, and taking steps closer and closer towards Christ every day, and putting our faith into action by living in a way that reflects Christ and that brings Him glory. And if we do that, if we are faithful, there's more to gain than simply avoiding consequences. And I think that's another dangerous thought process in the Christian mind, that sometimes we think that we're doing things and that we live the right way or go to church or do these good works because we're just trying to avoid the consequences. But there's so much more to that for the faithful who follow after Christ. I want to go backwards through this passage and look at some of the things that Jesus says are the rewards for the good and faithful servants. In verse 42, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. Jesus says if you're faithful with a little bit, if you're faithful with these gifts, if you're faithful with the salvation that you've been entrusted with, if you're faithful with this little piece that God has given you in the grand scheme of eternity, that when you stand before God and you give that account saying, here's how I've used what you've given me, God will look at us and he say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he'll welcome us into his kingdom. And it says that he will put us over much. We have this promise that if we're faithful with a little bit, that one day when we stand before God, we will gain everything, the fullness of the kingdom, and he'll welcome us in as his sons and daughters. And for those who are awake, it is coming, as we see earlier on in this passage. And as we talked about over the last couple weeks, the master is going to throw them a party. In verse 37, with these servants who were waiting at the second and third watch. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table and he will come and serve them. Again, this is probably a verse that would be very easy to skim over, but think about what Jesus is teaching us here. 
In the parable, he says the master is going to come home from the wedding feast and he's going to find that his servants have been faithful. And what he's going to do is while they were dressed for action, he is going to dress himself for service. And in N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament, he says he's going to dress himself like a waiter and serve them. And so the master of the house is going to elevate the servants to members of the household. And he's going to put on the clothes of the servant and he's going to feed them a meal. And in Revelation, we have a picture of that in the eternal sense is what John calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. That when Jesus comes to make everything right and everything new, the first thing that we're going to do together is God is going to throw a party for us. And the Bible says that Jesus himself here is going to serve us the meal of eternity. And then he's going to elevate us to being his sons and daughters, members of his household, inheritors of the kingdom. And at this great banquet, the master will serve the servants a meal that will echo throughout eternity. A reward that will never fade away. A reward that not only did we not deserve, but we couldn't have earned, but Jesus did for us and that he gives it to us freely, showing us that our watching and our waiting was not in vain. But even though we felt like we might have missed rewards here and now because we were following Christ faithfully, he will give us something greater than anything we could have ever imagined. And so our calling is to stay awake and to be ready and to serve, and to be good servants as we feel our master is away, as we know that one day he'll come again to make all things right and all things new. And what's amazing is he didn't leave us alone, that he left us with the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and teach us and to encourage us to go and to do these things. And through that, we can remember that one day our master will reward our faithfulness when he returns. And so we have the responsibility to use our lives well, to recognize that what we do here and now matters not just here and now, but for all of eternity, and to take that calling very seriously as servants of God and also as children of God. But God knows, again, that can be hard for us to remember. And so because God is a God who calls us to remember, God has always been a God who gives us things to help us remember. And he does that through what we call the sacraments or the ordinances of the Christian faith, these two commandments that we have to practice and to follow in our lives with God. One of those is baptism. And I am so thankful for baptism because there's so many days when I don't feel saved or it's hard to remember the work that Christ has done for me. And on those days, I can remember my baptism. I can remember that physical expression as I went under the water and was brought back out, reminding myself that because of Jesus, that Christ has washed me clean and made me new. That what was sinful and dead inside of me, God buried with Jesus and raised again to new life, and that I am a new creature and that I have a new hope. The other that Jesus gave us was the communion meal. And in the communion meal, we get this amazing opportunity to remember the gospel with all of our senses. We get to touch it. You can smell it. You can taste it. You can see it. And as the people come to the table, we can hear it moving around. We get to intimately interact with the grace of God. And every time we eat this very small meal, we are reminded of what God has done for us. We're reminded of the body of Christ that was broken. We're reminded of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we're reminded that Jesus has sealed our salvation through his resurrection. 
And what's amazing about the communion meal is that it points us in two directions. On one hand, it points us back towards the Exodus because it reminds us of that Passover meal and that that meal was the last meal that the people ate in Egypt as God delivered them out of slavery and into freedom. And so we remember that aspect of it as we partake in this meal. We remember that Christ, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were enslaved to sin, Jesus died on the cross to give us freedom, to take us out of our spiritual Egypt and to bring us in to freedom and new life. But this meal also points us forward to something. The communion meal is practiced for that wedding feast of the Lamb. The communion meal is Jesus feeding his servants every single day. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. And it's Jesus meeting us at the table and feeding us his grace and mercy, giving us the strength to continue remembering the gospel, but also reminding us that we have a call to action. That we eat this meal spiritually with our shoes on and our loins girded. We eat this meal with our lamps on, dressed for action. Because we know that we're going to come to this table, we're going to eat this meal, we're going to hear some announcements, we're going to have a benediction, and then we are going to be sent out to go and to do the work that Christ has called us to do. And so in just a moment, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you're going to have the invitation to come up to the table and to take a cup and to take a piece of bread and return to your seat. And then we're going to take this meal together. And we're going to be able to taste the cup and remember and to find strength for the in-between and to find hope for the ever after as we learn to follow Christ while we're waiting and to know that one day our waiting will be over and it will all be worth the wait.